invite you to please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5, um, our text tonight is verse 15 to the end of the chapter, verse 27, but just before we read to give a little bit of a uh, recap of those things that uh, Pastor Rob shared with us last Sunday night. From the first part of Second uh, Kings chapter 5, you remember that we are there introduced to a man by the name of Naaman, and he is the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man. He stood in high favor, and uh, he no doubt was active in warfare against Israel. And in capturing slaves from Israel, one of those slaves was a little girl from the land of Israel who, when it, it was found that he was with leprosy, this little girl said to him, would my, that my Lord uh, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And uh, what a beautiful thing for this captured slave girl to say this to her slave owners. Naaman goes to his king and uh, seeks permission to go to the king of, is- of Israel, and, and he uh, gathers uh, uh, things to take as gifts, and a letter is sent to the king of Israel. The king of Israel thinks that some sort of trap is being laid. And uh, he says uh, in verse, in verse uh, 7, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? And uh, he's seeking a quarrel with me. And then when Elisha hears of this, he says, Send him to me. Let him come to me. Verse 8. And so uh, Naaman goes to Elisha and stands uh, before Elisha with all of uh, his uh, retinue of, of, of people who are with him, his uh, 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 gifts to, that he had with him. And uh, he stands before Elisha, expecting Elisha to come out. Elisha doesn't, and uh, he sends his messenger instead with a message to Nahum, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you will be clean. And uh, uh, Naaman is very, very angry, you remember. He becomes very angry and incensed, and he says that he expected that Elisha would do some great uh, visible uh, ceremony to cause him to be clean. And uh, he goes away in a rage, but his servants persuade him to reconsider. And they say to him, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? This is a very great thing that he has said to you. So Naaman is convinced, and he goes down to uh, the Jordan River. And he did so according to the word of the Lord and He washed in the Jordan River seven times, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. What a beautiful, beautiful picture 
as Pastor Rob pointed out to us last week, of that saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. By his blood, our sins are washed away. Naaman here has more than a miracle of leprosy taken away. He himself comes out of the Jordan River, a changed man. And we're going to read about that change that, over, that took place in Naaman's life just now. So here we come to uh, verse 15. Hear the word of God. Then he returned to the man of God and all his company, he and all his company. And he came and he stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he, that is Naaman, urged him to take it, but he, Elisha, refused. When Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on, your, servants will not, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this manner, may the Lord pardon in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord, pardon your servant in this manner. And he said to him, go in peace. And when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. And so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. And he said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets, Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing. And he laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and sent, he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you, 
and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Well, Lord, this is your word that you have given to us to reveal yourself to us in the dealings in which you had with these men who lived in long ago. You revealed your word to Elisha, and you uh, uh, raised up this Syrian general Naaman and Gehazi, Elisha's servant. The things which occurred at this time were written for our benefit. So, O Lord, we ask that we might uh, learn those things that you would have us to learn from this passage, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of James in the New Testament, James describes two types of faith. That faith which is called a dead faith and that faith which is a living faith. And he asks the question, can faith that does not have works save a person? And he says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If there is a body without a soul to animate and live through it, it is dead. True faith, that faith which God produces in the human heart, is living and active, and it produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long uh, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. Faith is when it is uh, the result of God's miraculous grace uh, is not merely uh, a thing that appears outwardly, but it is something that transforms a person through and through. So tonight, what I'd like to do is look at these two men, Naaman and Gehazi, through this lens and see a contrast between them, to see in Naaman that faith that God caused him to have, drawing him to the prophet Elisha and uh, his miraculous healing, and to see in Gehazi that Israelite who has the outward form but does not demonstrate the fruit of true and living faith. And so I would like to, we, our, our division tonight is pretty simple. First is the evidence of a new and living faith in Naaman's heart. Secondly, the evidence of corruption in Gehazi's heart. First, the evidence of a new and living faith in Naaman's heart, that God had done something to Naaman that was life-changing for him. And we read in verse 15 that he returns to Elisha. You remember that uh, Jesus healed the lepers, and only one returned. So it's not to be taken for granted that Naaman would return. 
But Naaman went back to Elisha. Now, it's interesting, too, if you consider the fact that Elisha did not appear before Naaman before. And, uh, and uh, Naaman wouldn't have any guarantee that he would actually see Elisha. But something drove him to return to Elisha. That's the first thing we notice is <clears throat> there's a change in Naaman, a sign of change in Naaman. Secondly, we notice that Naaman confesses when he does appear before Elisha, he confesses uh, his new knowledge of God. And here are the words that he said in verse 15. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. There is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. This is an amazing confession of faith, that the God of Israel is the one true God. And he is not a tribal God. He's not limited to any one nation, but he is the God of all the earth. After all, Naaman is a general in the army, which is an enemy to Israel. And God has healed him of his leprosy. And in that act of healing him, he has changed him completely as well. He's given him a true and saving faith. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where the Lord God says this, in verse 39, See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. This is what Naaman is confessing. He is confessing that the one true God is the God of Israel, and he Naaman has been the recipient of his power. He's experienced it firsthand in his life. He's not heard about it from someone else. He has heard the testimony of this little girl who is a, a, a servant in his home who said, oh, that he would go to the prophet of Israel. But having gone now, he experiences that firsthand. He has a new knowledge that is not merely, barely intellectual knowledge, but it is a conviction that God has borne in his soul that there is one true and living God, and he is the God of Israel. What an amazing thing that he should confess his faith so boldly uh, before Elisha. The next thing that we notice in terms of a change that comes over Naaman is his humble gratitude. His humble gratitude. You remember the contrast between, if you contrast what Naaman is doing now with what he did previously, you remember that when Elisha didn't come out and speak to him and when he told him to go wash himself in a dirty, muddy river, Jordan, uh, he was 
he was insulted, and he was incensed. He was a great man. He was used to being treated as a great man. He was used to being shown deference. Elisha shows him no deference. He doesn't show him any uh, special regard. All of the people that were with him and all of the riches that he had with him, that he brought as gifts, meant nothing to Elisha. And so Naaman is angry. And so you see that this is a man who is who has been a proud man. He's proud of his standing. He's proud of the position that he holds. But something is different now. He comes and he stands and he places himself before Elisha and confessing that there is no God in all the earth but Israel, he now wants to show his gratitude And he says, accept now a present from your servant. Accept now a present from your servant. And it is true that a work of grace in the heart of someone who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the very first emotion, the very first uh, Uh, evidence of that living faith is that they are overjoyed and overwhelmed with a sense that God could love them and has reached down to them and performed a miracle in their heart, cleansing them from their sin, forgiving their sins and putting them in a state of grace and mercy from that point on to the rest of their life. And Naaman is, is uh, grateful, and he shows a humble gratitude to Elisha. Elisha refuses the gift. He says that the Lord lives before whom I stand. I will receive none. Naaman urges him again. And in the offering, uh, 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 in, in his attempt to offer these gifts, Naaman is rebuffed. But his attitude and his desire is noteworthy and is exemplary. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, is arranged in such a way that the third section in that catechism says in in, um, uh, question 86, it says, We do good because Christ by his Spirit is also renewing us to be like himself so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us. Is it not true that the Christian life is marked by gratitude motivating our obedience to God? Our desire to obey God is motivated, not by works, not by a trusting that somehow we need to Our works and our good works will appease him. We know that Christ is the one who appeases the wrath of God. He has taken our sins upon himself. And uh, our desire to live for him is motivated now by gratitude. The fourth thing that we see in Naaman is a resolve to worship God. 
a resolve to worship God as God's word prescribes that he is to be worshipped. It's, uh, it, it's noteworthy that uh, in verse 17, Naaman says, well, if you will not take my gifts, let me take something from you. If not, please let there be given to your servant. Please give me two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. That is such a fascinating request. That he should ask for mule loads of earth. Why do you think he asked that? Well, one answer is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 23 through 24. And I think somehow Naaman knew about this in the law of God. In Exodus 20, 23 through 24, we read this. First, God says, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. So notice the language there. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. That is, you won't place anything in the sanctuary. You won't place anything near the altar or on top of the altar to decorate it, to make it more effective and more uh, effectual. Instead, God says, in verse 24 of Exodus 20, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it. Your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep ox and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. An altar of earth you shall make for me. An altar of earth. Dirt. And now the question is, well, why? Why this requirement? And I can't help but think that in requiring that no human additions be made and no images be made or added to the place where God is to be worshipped, that it is a way of expressing the value of human works and human merit. And actually, the value of anything that is derived from a corrupted, sinful human heart. It cannot withstand the holiness of God. And it cannot bring God any closer to us. All of our works, all of our efforts, can't satisfy God or bring him nearer to us. This is part of the revelation of God's grace. It is the revelation that it's not what we do. It's nothing that I have accomplished. It is nothing that I bring with my hands to God to make him more pleased with me. It is not the prayers that I pray. It's not the time that I spent studying the word this week. It's not the good deeds that I have done this week that somehow appeases God and causes him to love me more. 
But when we come before God, we come empty-handed with nothing in our hands. It is Christ upon whom we rest. It is God's gift to us in Him that gives us confidence to enter into His presence. And somehow, some way, Naaman had an understanding that his relationship with God was a free gift to him. I think that is why Elisha refused the, the offerings that Naaman wanted to give, the, the wealth and the riches and the gifts. Think of the good that could have been done with that. Think of the prophets and the poverty that they lived in and the need that they had for all of the things that Naaman had there in his wagons. And uh, Elisha says no, and he says no because he did not want to give any idea in Naaman's mind that somehow he had incentivized God or bribed God or that there was any connection between anything that he could do or bring and what God had freely bestowed upon him in his healing and in his salvation. It is a beautiful thing to understand the completeness and the totality of the grace of God. It was not I who sought him, but he moved me seeking him, and he sought me. Why did he do that? Because of anything in you? No, only by his infinite and eternal and everlasting love he manifested himself to you, and he did it all by grace. So it is Naaman's resolve that he will worship God and he'll worship God according to his prescription. And we we attempt to do that. We ought to do that. We ought to worship God and not bringing anything of our own before him, but relying completely and totally upon Jesus Christ, our Savior. Third, the the fifth thing uh, that we notice about Naaman is that he has a sensitive conscience. We notice that uh, in verse 18, uh, he says, uh, in this matter, you can almost feel this in uh, naming that he has an uneasy spirit. He says, in this matter, what matter? Uh, In the matter of worship. He says, may the Lord pardon your servant. He, he, He kind of anticipates something that is bothering him, bothering his conscience. It's a sign of the living, the work of the living God if your conscience is bothered. Bothering him in this matter, in the worship of God, pardon your servant, when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, And I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And so he knows that when he gets back to Syria, his master is going to require him, as he has done all along, to go with him into the temple of an idol. He's going to be, his master will be on his arm, and he is going to be expected 
to physically bow in that house, in that idol temple. He wants Elisha to know that he is not bowing spiritually, though he may be required to do so physically. Even the physical aspect of it bothers him, and he asks the forgiveness of Elisha for it. And right away, uh, if you think about the historical time in which this is taking place, think of Israel as a nation. Think of their idolatry. Think of Baal. How they've all descended into the, the worship of false gods. <laughs> there are very few people in Israel who have this kind of qualm of conscience that uh, Naaman is deeply troubled by. And he stands in contrast to Israel. And so how do we interpret this? Uh, Many of the writers on this passage uh, find fault with Naaman here and see him as, in a sense, of asking ahead of time for forgiveness for a sin he knows he must commit. And uh, Matthew Henry, in his comment on this, uh, says that uh, he knows that he cannot otherwise uh, but do this. Um, but uh, he says, all things considered... This might admit of some apology, though it was not justifiable. And he applies that to his readers, Matthew Henry does, and, and says, don't enter into covenant with God in such a way that you are anticipating sinning and asking God for forgiveness ahead of time as you anticipate that you will sin. Matthew Henry is exactly right in that. The question is, how does Elisha respond to this? Elisha responds to it by saying, go in peace. Elisha doesn't say what we are all tempted to say. Elisha says, go in peace. Elisha does not, and that, that answer in itself is interesting. He doesn't say it's okay. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't justify it. But he says to Naaman that he wants him to go back home in a state of peace with God. And I think that Elisha knows that it is going to take some time for Naaman, as it does for new Christians, to work out their relationships and old entanglements. And that does take time, and it takes pastoral patience and sensitivity. On the one hand, Matthew Henry is right. Don't ask for forgiveness for a sin you intend to commit. Don't ask forgiveness ahead of time. On the other hand, there are occasions when we have to engage in behavior that is outward only. We have to attend a funeral in a church that is not orthodox. 
You may have to engage in some kind of behavior that requires your physical presence, though you disapprove of that which is going on. And uh, so I think Paul's statement about Christians who are newly converted, he says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. He who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. So you're here, you have that conflict between the inner and the outward. Outwardly, I'm a bondservant. Inwardly, I'm a free man. And in Naaman, you have this conflict between the outward. He's required to be at the right side of his master and to give honor to the one who is in authority over him. But he does not approve of the worship of Ramon. And he wants Elisha to know about it. I think it's commendable that he says something to Elisha about it. I would encourage us all, especially young people who are here today, to be open, as Naaman was, about the conflict you're struggling with. Naaman expresses this to Elisha, and he seeks Elisha's wisdom and his response. And what does Elisha say? He says, go in peace. And Naaman, believing as he does in the God of Israel, he will resolve it. And he'll extricate himself from that conflict as soon as he can. The, 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 life, the faith of Naaman is a living faith, and it shows itself in his behavior. Uh, there's a story about uh, a domestic servant that was, uh, uh, became a Christian in uh, Charles Spurgeon's church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And when Charles Spurgeon was uh, quizzing this domestic servant about her faith, he asked for the, uh, any, anything that she could tell him that was an evidence of that faith. And she, the story goes that she blushed and she admitted. She says, well, I sweep under the mats now. Oh, there's the difference that Christ makes. You act honorably, truthfully, honestly. We sweep under the mats. We do that which God requires us to do. And Naaman shows himself in all the respects that we've already mentioned as desiring to please God. What is the evidence of living faith in you and in me? Do we have a change in our life, a change in our attitudes? Do we show by the way that we live that God has done a work of grace and our sins have been forgiven. Let me look next at Gehazi. And Gehazi shows that he resents everything that has just happened. Verses 19 and following, uh, 19b. And when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, we read, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian and not, a, not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. You have to note several things. Notice that he calls him Naaman the Syrian. And that is an ethnic slur. 
Gehazi doesn't like the fact that Naaman is standing in front of Elisha and that Naaman has been shown grace by God. He thinks of Naaman as a Syrian general who has done great harm to Israel and who has, in fact, brought many Israelites into servitude in Syria. He's not pleased with this dallying with the enemy. It would be a bit like the uh, colonial uh, army um, uh, showing uh, grace and mercy to a British officer. That's a Roman American American um, uh, uh, officer in the Revolutionary Army showing mercy to a British officer. And so uh, Naaman is a Syrian general. We have to remember that. And as Gehazi was not happy with this, uh, neither were those who listened to Jesus when he preached his sermon in Nazareth. In uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 27, we read that Jesus said to the people in the, uh, in the Nazareth synagogue, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So there were many in Israel that needed healing. But Naaman the Syrian, the enemy of Israel, was cleansed. And we're told, Luke tells us, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their own town was built so that they could throw him over the cliff. But passing between their midst, they went away. He went away. And so uh, they tried to kill Jesus because of that reference to Naaman being cleansed and uh, Israel lepers not being cleansed. And Gehazi is right there. He's not happy. Not only that, he covets what Naaman, the treasure that Naaman has. He lusts for it. He wants it. He wants, you could say, for uh, he might have his own reasons. He wants to do some good with it, possibly. But he engages in deceit, and he justifies his deceit. He says, on the, uh, he's piously says, as the Lord lives, I will get something for, from him. But in order in the, uh, to do that, he says, he lies. He outright manufactures a lie. And uh, Naaman comes and, and uh, sees him following him, and he, and he, and he says, uh, my master has sent me, verse 22, my master has sent me to say, there have now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophet. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. It's a total lie, total falsehood. And uh, he engages in that deceit. He thinks that he's justified in doing it, but he engages in that deceit. And that deceit leads him to lie again when confronted before Elisha. And he's asked, where have you been? He says, nowhere. Have you ever noticed that once you begin a path of deceit, have you ever noticed that once you tell one lie, you've got to stay consistent, which means that you have to continue to tell lies. And that's what Gehazi does. 
We also note that Gehazi, by his attitude toward Naaman, denies the gospel. He denies the gospel of grace. Elisha's response to Naaman, uh, Elisha's response to Gehazi when he is standing before him, he says in verse 26, but he said, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Was it a time? No, it was not the time, because God had just shown his grace to Naaman. In the words of Raymond Dillard, commentator on this passage, he says, why did God respond so harshly to the prophet's servant Gehazi? In part, he says, I suspect that it was because Gehazi was undoing what God had done. God wanted Naaman to know his free grace, but Gehazi was trying to put a price on the goodness of God. The God of Israel does not accept bribes or make room for human pride. His grace is free. Gehazi was implying otherwise. He was implying otherwise. So in this request for money from Naaman, Gehazi denies the freeness of the gospel of grace. And as we have said already, that freeness is absolutely precious to every believer. And he, uh, Gehazi, by his doing this, has brought out, uh, has made the gospel be twisted and perverted. Well, he's found out. He finds out that nothing is really hidden. And uh, Elisha tells him that his heart knew. He knew. He saw him in his actions. Nothing was hidden. Just as in our actions, nothing is hidden. God knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our, our attempts to deceive. If you're ever tempted to go down that path, don't do it. If you ever do go down that path of deceit, confess it immediately and be done with it. The judgment must have been awful for Gehazi because Elisha said that the leprosy that was on Naaman would come upon Gehazi, both he and all generations after him. And he went out from his presence a leper like snow. So if it is true that these two men exemplify and are examples to us and point us to, first of all, the freeness of God's grace, and saving one who is an enemy to Israel, and making him a son of Abraham, as we heard this morning, giving him faith, a true and saving faith, and making him a son of Abraham. We see God's grace in Naaman. We also see that Gehazi is, illustrates the, the, the way that Israel's faith is corrupted. All of the blessings of the covenant all of the nearness of God to her and all of the institutions that she had that God had blessed her with, all of this was nothing if it was not combined with true and living faith and trust in God. And then finally, 
I just want to make note of one added lesson that we can see here. And it's a comment that Peter Lightheart makes in his commentary on this. I'll just read what he says. The exchange between Naaman and Gehazi, that is the exchange, Naaman's being cleansed of leprosy, Gehazi being judged with leprosy, that exchange between Naaman and Gehazi points to the blessed exchange of the cross where the one who comes from Israel, who is an Israelite, but who has no sin, is made sin for us. Jesus takes on the leprosy of all who know and love him. And on the cross, he bears that shame. He bears that guilt. He bore that for you so that you might be cleansed and so that you might show that living faith for the rest of your life, a life of gratitude to God for his amazing grace. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the miracle of grace shown to Naaman, the Syrian general. Thank you for the warning that you give to us, even in the characters of Scripture, the warning of going down a path in which we do not understand and know you and uh, receive so many blessings and yet do not benefit from them. Keep us from that, we pray. And go with us, we pray, this night and enable us to know you and to love you and to rejoice in the grace that you have shown.